This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, this is Deborah Kassoff from MPB Foundation. You're already listening, so you know the value that Mississippi Public Broadcasting adds to your day. But you might never have thought about what keeps the doors open and the lights on. MPB receives support from a variety of sources, but without listeners like you investing in the homegrown content and trusted information you count on, there would be no MPB. This week through October 24th, pitch in any amount to be entered into our daily drawings. Call or text GIVE to 888-372-4483 or visit mpbonline.org or click the link in the description. Everyone at MPB thanks you. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. We're covering three topics today. Cryptocurrencies, required minimum distributions, and signing up for health care. Today, it's a special Money Talks. We aren't taking your personal finance phone calls today because we're giving you the opportunity to call and make a contribution to support Money Talks and all of MPB. The contribution phone number is one 888 372-GIVE. It's 1-888-372-4483. You can always contact us by email with your personal finance questions. Send them to money at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Nancy. We always like to start out with you. What's some current financial news that you're thinking about? Good morning, Kevin. Well, we've had an announcement from the Social Security Administration, and if you are a recipient of Social Security, you're going to see a nice raise next year, 5.9%. The last time we had this big of a raise uh, was in 2009 because it was calculated in the fall before the, the financial crisis of 2008. Um, so for the average recipient, that's going to be $92 extra a month. But be careful because in November we will get information about increases in Medicare premiums. And I'm expecting those to go up because of inflation, which is why we have this big cost of living adjustment on Social Security. But also because of COVID, I'm expecting to see those premiums hike significantly. So much of that 5.9% may be wiped out. Uh, but also, I would imagine that um, there would need to be some sort of companion action, and that would be um, legislation to make sure that the Social Security fund doesn't run dry. Well, that's a whole different conversation, and uh, we are certainly looking at those issues. The last time Social Security was adjusted was in 1983, and we are living longer, and we're going to talk more about that and, and the changes in laws because we are living longer, And um, but we do need to address that. Now, some people say, oh, by they, they keep giving us new dates of, of when the Social Security is going to run dry, but remember, people will still be working and paying into the system. So if they don't adjust it, you still, as a uh, recipient, will receive most of your benefit because money will still be flowing in from current workers. But our problem is we have an aging population. We are living longer. We do need to address those issues. And we always like to remind folks that uh, both Social Security and you, Nancy and Ryder, uh, say do not depend on Social Security as your sole source of income in retirement. Just treat it as a nice little extra 
extra uh, land yap, I guess. Yeah, it should be one of the uh, three-legged stool. And so maybe you've got a pension, even though those are disappearing for a lot of people out there. Um, Kevin, you're a state employee. You still have the benefit of a pension. Uh, And then the third leg is what's in your 401K, what you've accumulated on your own. So good morning, Ryder. What's on your mind, financially speaking, this morning? Good morning. Well, I was just going to say, and Nancy's got to watch out, or our, our, our dear friend Sean Mercer might not want to come back on the show if she's going to be the expert on Social Security. I've learned so much that. from him. <laughs> We've got so much good info there. Um, so one conversation we've been having a lot lately with clients is just talking about the market. Of course, we have had since the lows last March, the market has been fairly steady uh, uh, except for last quarter. Last quarter was the first kind of flat to down quarter. And it was pretty much all just a, a large drop in September. September was just a rough month for the markets. Uh, S&P 500 was down about 5 or 6% at some point, uh, a little bit more than that, just depending on if you go uh, what numbers you're counting by, intraday or close. And uh, we've made most of that back. I was just looking at that today because the past couple of days have been pretty pretty bright green, and we've opened a little bit higher today. So we're now, again, pretty close to all-time highs that we were at at the beginning of September. So for folks who were worrying about their accounts when they saw that month-end statement, and it was really just a poorly timed month-end um, then I can can assure you that if as long as you didn't do any panicked changes, then you are probably almost back to where you were before. This is Money Talks, and we'll start the show by talking about signing up for health care. Many folks at their place of work are getting email reminders to sign up for health insurance. Healthcare.gov is a website where you can go get health insurance on your own. The open enrollment period runs from November 1st through January 15th. So, Nancy, who needs to shop at healthcare.gov for their insurance? Well, if you don't have a plan through your employer, and over half of us get our health insurance through our employer. In fact, we are the only developed country whose health insurance is attached to our employment. And we saw that that was a real issue this last year when we had people being laid off from their jobs, losing health insurance at the same time that we were in the middle of this major health crisis. Um, and that came about because of uh, World War II. There was a freeze in wages, and there was also a tight labor market, which is what we're experiencing right now. So employers decided to get creative, and they started offering benefits. And that's when health insurance started to be attached to our employment, and um, that's what we're dealing with now. But for those people who don't have that, then they're going to have to search for it on their own. And so going through um, healthcare.gov is a way to do that. If you're self-employed, and there are a lot of people who are just single persons out there uh, working, they will need that. If you're unemployed, um, it is available only to U.S. citizens who live in the United States. It's not for people who are Medicare eligible, and that's 65 or older. And uh, so it's a way to get some coverage if you don't have access through the typical way in the U.S., which is through your employer. And so that is uh, healthcare.gov is where that website resides. So, Ryder, how does someone sign up for health care with the marketplace? 
Yes, yeah, so you can either use that website, healthcare.gov, like you said, and I know when it was first announced, first released uh, back back in the day, uh, and then there were a lot of issues with it. Folks were complaining about how slow it was, and that has gotten a lot better. So it is it is now, if maybe a little tedious because it is applying for healthcare, uh, it has gotten a lot better, the, the experience of applying and the process of finding things. They also have a 24-hour phone line that you can call. And there are also, very conveniently, and I know this is going to be super helpful for a lot of people, you can get help applying. You can have a local agent or I think they call them assisters, folks who are just trained specially to use the website. And they're not really doing anything super fancy. They're not necessarily offering you advice on what plan you are getting, but these are people who can help you navigate the process and make sure you get from start to finish without losing your mind. Uh, You can also have a local agent uh, contact you. And importantly, I would recommend going to the healthcare.gov website to get that list of local uh, agents or brokers or assisters. Uh, you, you don't necessarily just want some somebody who claims to be offering that. I just, I just want people to be careful, especially with, with healthcare. You're giving over so much personal information. You want someone who's going to be, uh, be trusted to keep that information private and and be you know, respectful of the information that you're giving. Uh, and there are options available, yeah. I guess. Yes. So when you get when you get to the healthcare.gov website, then you just like any other website these days, you have to make a login and you plug in some information about yourself. And the the main thing, the main product that you're looking for is your healthcare plan. And those have been dubbed bronze, silver, and gold uh, to get you into the Olympic spirit, of course. <laughs> and essentially, you have at the bronze level is often a very high deductible, but it's going to be your lowest premium. So it's going to be your lowest monthly cost, but it offers you the least benefit. And the least benefits is in dollars. As far as the actual coverages, the, the, the things that insurance covers, these are these have gotten a lot more uniform in uh, since since the uh, since the healthcare law uh, was passed. So it's mostly just what is the deductible? How much do you have to pay before the health insurance kicks in? And, of course, that amount does go up every year. So the bronze plan would have the the largest amount that you have to pay. The silver would have the second largest deductible. And then the gold plan would be the smallest deductible. And it would also have the lowest, uh, sorry, the highest premium. So you have to pay more on a monthly basis if you want it to protect more of your dollars when you do get into a health care bind. Uh, Nancy, talk about uh, maybe some thoughts about how folks can help decide, you know, where they fit in that terms of high premium, low deductible, that sort of thing. Well, the big issue is do you have some emergency cash that you can get to if you have a crisis? Um, because with health insurance, you're, you're covering the what if. Any kind of insurance is what if. What if I get sick? And you want to cover the big things that could happen. But if you're in a situation where you have very little uh, emergency cash that you you wouldn't be able to cover a high deductible amount, um, if you have very low limits on a credit card, you couldn't even use that, or you're maxed out on your credit card, then it becomes more important for you to make sure 
sure that you're not faced with a big deductible when you have a health crisis. For most of the people who have have accumulated savings, have some amount sitting on the sidelines, um, even a deductible like $5,000 is is reasonable and doable in that situation and makes more sense when you're talking about the premiums you're going to have to pay. But that's what you're looking at. And uh, Nancy, I remember early on there was uh, a tax penalty for Americans who didn't have health care. Is that still around? No, they they did away with that. And I don't think it was that much. I'm thinking maybe around $95 a year. Now, I do think they're still asking for you to report that. Um, my memory on my taxes is that I do uh, put in information, and I, I do have uh, a form that's used that's reported to me. And I think that's just so they can track coverage, but no no penalty anymore. Yeah, I think uh, I remember that uh, here at work we got some sort of form that basically was saying the same thing that was like, yes, you, you do have uh, health insurance. So uh, that's uh, something to look for around tax time if, if you do get uh, health insurance through your employer. So thanks for listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our fall on-air fundraising campaign is on. We're asking you to give for the love of Mississippi. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR's Morning Edition. People have stories about their car, that long summertime family road trip, that hand-me-down first car they got when they turned 16, the first car they bought on their own. And cars can generate other kinds of stories, like the kind you hear on this station. When you donate a vehicle to this station, the proceeds bring you stories from around the world. Here's how to get started. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Money Talks. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past Money Talks broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen to on your iPhone or Android phone on demand to all the local MPB Think Radio programs. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft portfolio manager at New Perspectives. You know, it's no coincidence that this matching that uh, Java and Lisa were talking about is occurring during Money Talks because we know that you listen to this show, you're interested in finances, and so now make that contribution where you can double the power of your contribution. As we said, a $100 contribution is $200, $10 is $20. You know how to double things, so um, make the, the call during this hour to get that match of your contribution. On Money Talks today, we're covering three completely different personal finance topics. We talked about health care. We'll now transition to cryptocurrency. Nancy, we've joked about cryptocurrency currency on the show before, but as time has passed, this is becoming a more serious form of payment, I guess. Well, is MPB accepting Bitcoin for <laughs> donations now? Uh, yeah, it, it really is an odd thing. And um, I always go back to the definition of money. What is money? Well, money is something you use to uh, store value. If I work today or I create something today, but I don't want to spend that value, I can store it in money. I can hold on to it. I can then use that to buy something later on. Well, 
well, you know, cryptocurrency is also a store of value. We are seeing it become mainstream. I have a problem with it when it comes to the, the characteristic of unit of account. Because it is so volatile, it's really difficult to figure out what is this thing worth. If I have $10 in my pocket, I have a good sense when I look at a price tag whether something is expensive or cheap and, and how I can purchase that. Um, but it is becoming more mainstream. We see a lot of corporations now having um, some sort of cryptocurrency on their balance sheet. Think Tesla. We're even hearing of universities accepting it for tuition. Um, it's being used to purchase artwork. Um, and then this past summer, El Salvador became the first country to accept Bitcoin as part of their transactions. So it is being used more and more. Um, it is an interesting area. I confess I know enough uh, that that can fit in a thimble with room left over. <laughs> yeah, as you mentioned, El Salvador in June became the first country to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. In August, Cuba followed with Resolution 215 to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. But then, interestingly enough, in September of this year, China declared all cryptocurrency transactions illegal, completing a crackdown on cryptocurrency that had previously banned the operation of intermediaries and miners within China. So interesting uh, to the way different countries around the world are reacting to the increased use of cryptocurrency. So, Ryder, if I wanted to own cryptocurrency, or you or a listener, uh, what are the options? Uh, well, there are a lot of different cryptocurrencies available. Of course, the large one that kind of everyone had heard of, the first one, of course, Bitcoin itself. And that was the first one made, I want to say it's at this point about 10 years ago, maybe slightly longer. And that was just designed as a coin that can be traded, uh, generated, uh, computers generate it, and it can be traded in between people who have a, a Bitcoin wallet, which is basically just an address of where to send it. If, if you are sending it uh, to someone, you need to know their address. If you are receiving it from someone, you, they need to know your address. Um, the other ones, the Ethereum was another big one, which was built to have programs run on its, they call it a blockchain, which is essentially just the public record of, of where all these transactions are going. There are others such as Ripple, Cardano, Stellar, Dogecoin. I am just reading off of a very long, long list of cryptocurrencies out there today that you can buy. There's one called Enzyme, Lisk, Nano, Ren. There's one that's QTUM. Not sure about that one. Um, but there are a lot of them out there, a lot of different coins that you can, or tokens that you can purchase and trade. Uh, so if I wanted to, could I create Kevcoin? You could, you could, and and there's a lot of folks out there who are you know willing to help you create uh, the Kev coin. And what's interesting about all of these is they all have slightly different features. It's not like they're just dollar one, dollar two, and dollar three. They're all designed to solve slightly different problems, or they're all designed to be used in a slightly different way. And so everyone is trying to tackle a different problem with each of these. 
which makes it a really interesting time in the cryptocurrency space, just because people are identifying problems and trying to solve them. And, and I, obviously, right now, like I said, I have a page open that has maybe 100 listed, and I don't know which ones are going to be the one of the future, or I don't know which ones are going to be supported or anyone's going to care about in a year or five years or 10 years. But but it is kind of exciting to see folks trying all these different things and, and developing their new their new coins and, and seeing where they go. Uh, but I would imagine investment-wise that the, the the risky thing is, as you said, we don't know. It, to me, it reminds me of you know Betamax versus a VHS. So if if I put all my eggs in the Betamax basket back then, uh, I didn't fare very well. So is it risky in that you know I'm backing this type of cryptocurrency, but ten years from now, it might not be something, and one of the other ones is. That could certainly be a concern, and a concern not only for someone who has maybe moved some money into Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple. That could be a concern of theirs, but that's also a concern of people who are working on developing these or companies that are backing these and, and trying to make use of these. Is, is all of this effort going to be wasted? Should I be spending my time on this one? Does this one really solve a problem in a unique way that we really need? So. We don't really talk about it. I don't really talk about it as a point from from as a standpoint of investing. Like you need to put X dollars into Bitcoin. That that is not a piece of advice that I would give. Certainly not in a blanket way. Because a lot of times. What if, if someone has a specific use for it? So, like we were just saying, El Salvador, uh, Cuba, they have they have made they have accepted them as legal tender. And actually, El Salvador is really pushing really hard. They're encouraging people to sign up for what is called a Bitcoin wallet, so that everyone will have one. And they're even incentivizing that by sending people a little bit of Bitcoin, a couple a couple dollars worth of Bitcoin. But these these are countries. So El Salvador. In particular, they get a lot of money from remittances. So folks will come and work in the United States, and they will send back send money back to their families in El Salvador. And it is extremely difficult. And this is a very frustrating problem across finance. And it, it, I'm a little surprised it hasn't gotten solved a little bit better in the normal finance world. Sending money across borders is difficult because sending money is a highly regulated thing. You are doing it between two highly regulated entities. Banks are both highly regulated regulated in the in the country you're sending from and the country receiving. So there's just a lot of red tape to get through. It's expensive. Western Union charges $5 to send $50. That is a huge fee. Bitcoin is a little bit it is cheaper. The transaction fees are generally speaking cheaper. However, you do have to deal with that volatility. You know, if you send something that was it was a hundred dollars when you sent it, and it ends up being ninety dollars when your relative is able to cash out, that's no good. That's that's just as high a fee as Western Union. If you send something that was a hundred dollars and it ends up being a hundred and ten when they cash out, well, that's fantastic. So, some stability, like Nancy alluded to earlier, would be really useful for folks using it for remittances. It's a great money transfer product. So for folks who need that, have a need for money transfers, I think it's really good for them right now. 
so Nancy Ryder mentioned how traditional methods of, of uh, finance are, are highly regulated. Uh, has regulation come to the cryptocurrency market as yet? Not yet, but we're hearing murmurs, and certainly there is concern um, among Treasury Department officials, Federal Reserve officials, looking at what's happening in the crypto market and starting to think about uh, some regulations there. The regulation of our financial system is important because that is critical to our overall economic health. That's why they are so heavily regulated. And we saw this in 2008 when our financial system crashed. And um, we had to then subsidize, hold it up, because it was affecting all of us. And so that's the concern with all of that. Now, that's the good part, as Ryder mentioned, about cryptocurrency, because, you know, it's not changing from one currency to another currency as it crosses borders. It's easy to move money back and forth. You don't have to have a bank or intermediary in the middle, which means it's faster, it's more efficient, and it should be cheaper. But then we open up the door to all of these questionable things. Uh, one of the uh, reasons Bitcoin had a rise and then a fall right at first, it was uh, first came onto the scene in 2009, was because it was being used for illegal activities, criminal activities. It was, it was, you know, you don't have to launder your money uh, through some uh, credible source. You can now just use crypto to move that money back and forth. And that is still going on, but we're also seeing a lot more of the normal activities going that route. And, you know, while there's still not a lot of regulation, it, it sounds like it would be ripe for people to take advantage. Crooks might uh, be interested in this. And then notice in our note about Cuba, uh, they accepted Bitcoin, uh, which will help them cir circumvent U.S. sanctions. So it's kind yeah. of a Wild West atmosphere till things get a little more uh, regulated. Well, and it and it harkens back to when we started to see. You mentioned Wild West. We had those wildcat banks back um, years ago, and back then, banks, local banks, issued their own currency called specie. And um, in some cases, they held value. In some cases, they did not. So it's kind of the same thing going on right now. Uh, so, Ryder, recently in the news, uh, there was uh, something about investing in a roundabout way uh, with Bitcoin. Do you have some details on that? I just want to make a quick note about regulation of cryptocurrencies. It's not so much that there's no regulation. And, and I mean, it's true. There is no department of the cryptocurrency regulation or we have no we have the president does not appoint the cryptocurrency regulator regulations just apply to the activity you're doing so it's not that there's no cryptocurrency regulation it's that they're doing things and refusing to be regulated one example which we've been talking about in the office has kind of come big news recently is there is a coin called Tether. And initially, it was designed to solve the problem of that Nancy pointed out of stability. They said, okay, you give us a dollar, we will give you a Tether coin, and we will put that dollar in a bank account for you. And it will keep it safe. And if you ever want that dollar back, you give us the Tether. Great. Fantastic. 
And then they started investing in, and, and that's that was basically fine. Then they started investing in other things. They started investing in commercial paper, and they started investing in other cryptocurrencies. And effectively, what they're doing, they were trying to maintain that dollar value. They're investing in other things. They were behaving like a money market. And money markets are regulated. They're not super highly regulated, but they do have regulations. Tether is simply not following those regulations. It doesn't mean that Tether is not regulated. It just means that they're not following the regulation. Uh, And as much as we do like to point out regulations that are holding folks back, as much as we do like to complain sometimes about regulations, they were designed to protect people. For instance, all the money market fund regulations that I was referencing, a lot of those got a really big update in the in the financial crisis in 2008 when a money market broke. People put a dollar into it expecting to get a dollar back out, and they did not get a dollar back out. So regulations, the rules changed there about what money markets could do, what they needed to hold, etc. So they are meant to protect people. You could start a bank using Bitcoin. It doesn't mean you're unregulated. It just means if you don't let bank inspectors in, if you don't seek out a banking charter, if you don't subject yourself to banking regulations, you're just not following the law. Just like if you started a bank and used dollars, you're still subject to the law. So that's when we say there's no regulation, it's more that a lot of them aren't following it. Um, and there are some legitimate things where it's not clear who's supposed to be regulating them. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for choosing MPB as your station for news and ideas. It means a lot to us and to the community at large that a nonprofit station like MPB can thrive in such a crowded media landscape. You make that happen through your contribution. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. It's always a good idea to check moneytalks.mpbonline.org. You can get the podcast version of the show, but also our producer, Liz Gill, does a great job of rounding up some links for further discussion and information on the topics that we talk about on the program. So moneytalks.mpbonline.org for the audio of the show, but also for additional information about what we talk about. You know, we're not taking your personal finance questions by phone call this hour, but we are encouraging you, as Lisa and Java just mentioned, to call in with your contribution to our support line. It's 1-888-372-GIVE. And remember, dollar for dollar match through the end of the hour. We're talking about three completely different things on the show today. We've covered health care and cryptocurrency. Now up, it's required minimum distributions. So, Nancy, for those who don't know, what is an RMD? 
an RMD. That's our shortened version of that. And um, that applies to tax-deferred accounts. IRAs, individual retirement accounts, uh, 401ks, 403bs, and the idea is that the government has set up these accounts to allow us to save without paying taxes on them on the front end, but they're expecting their cut at some point, which is when we start to take the money out. So the RMD, the required minimum distribution, is a calculation that tells you how much you have to take out. And the idea is that once you retire, that money should start to come out, you pay taxes on it, and spread it out over your lifetime. The RMDs used to start at 70 and a half. That weird half was just driving me crazy. Uh, Ryder liked Weird, it, Nancy. But. I love it. <laughs> you did I'll love it. the 70 and a half number. <laughs> <laughs> but in 2019, we had the SECURE Act, and the SECURE Act changed that 70 and a half to age 72. So in the calendar year that you turn 72, have that 72nd birthday, then you have to start taking out a certain amount. And how is that calculated? Well, it's based on the size of your account as of the previous year end. So if you started this year is your first year to be 72, then we would look at the value of your account on 12-31-2020, and we would use that amount, and then we'd use the IRS tables, which are life expectancy tables, to come up with the, the divider that we use to then calculate the amount that you have to take out. If you don't take out that minimum amount, there is a 50% penalty, so it's really important to pay attention to that. And um, on the front end, that's going to be about 4% that will gradually work into higher percentages as you age, again, because the idea is for you to spread this out over a lifetime with larger amounts later on. Uh, so, Ryder, what are some special circumstances that change how an RMD is calculated? Look, I just want to start by saying that 72 is going to be harder for some people to remember oh, no, as an RMD no. age because <laughs> think about this. We were just going we were, we were just going through the other day and looking at folks who would need to take an RMD, and there was someone who is turning 72 this year, so he will take an RMD. Now, he turns 72 at the end of December. He is sitting around all 2021 thinking, I'm not 72 yet. I don't have to take an RMD. And yet, he does. So, whereas 70 and a half, it means the year that you're mostly 70. So, you can have your birthday any time in the year. But in the year that you're mostly 70, that's the year you take it. I think it was yeah. a brilliant move to have it at seventy and a half. So I will keep defending that every time we raise it up. So if you, if you want if you want this if you want this conflict, Kevin, keep bringing it up. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and also know that there is a proposal to raise the age even further. So and we think this seventy two and a half. Seventy two and a half. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> year we see a change in that, and they will gradually raise that. Twenty twenty two would be uh, seventy three and then by 2029, 74, and then by 2032, 75. Again, what we mentioned earlier is that we're living longer. Yeah. I, and I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to changing them at any time. Um, I, I just, I just do love, I do love the little quirks like that. 
So, uh, you, Kevin, you mentioned special circumstance that change how an RMD is calculated. If your spouse is much younger than you, then you may have a different calculation on your RMD. Uh, but most of the weird calculations come in when you inherit an IRA. And we get these questions a lot, so I want to I wanna make sure I, I, I answer this as clearly as I can. Previously, prior to the SECURE Act, if you inherited an IRA, so the SECURE Act, the rule is based on uh, when the person uh, when the person died, when, when the person who passed that on to you died. Previously, you got to start taking, you had to start taking the required distributions based on your lifetime, or if there are multiple beneficiaries, sometimes the rule was based on the lifetime of the oldest beneficiary, just so everyone's taking the same amount. That was the rule. And so you could continue to stretch those out for forever, which was really good if you say you're 45 years old when you inherit an IRA and you're in your peak earning years. And it's nice to inherit money, of course, but if you had had to take that all out all at once, you're in your peak earning years, you're in your peak tax years, you're just adding money, you know, that $100,000 that you inherited quickly becomes fifty or sixty thousand dollars due to the taxes. And so allowing people to stretch that out was was a nice benefit. Now that is simply ten years. You have ten years to take it out. It's not exactly clear if you take out ten you know, tenths each year or if you can just wait till the tenth year. I think you have a lot of flexibility there, but I don't believe we have good guidance on that yet. But if you're not the spouse who is inheriting, then you have ten years to take it out. There are two exceptions to that 10-year rule, which I like because the 10-year rule is simple. It is across the board. If you are a spouse, you can just treat that as your own, or you can go by, back by the old rules of taking required distributions throughout the rest of your life, which is really useful if you are in the unfortunate circumstance of being a spouse who is who is not 60 yet. You are, say, say you're 50 years old and, and your spouse dies you can take that and you depended on them for income you can take their ira and immediately turn that into something that's generating income for you so that's one way you can do it then the other the other exception is if a minor child inherit or or a disabled or chronically ill person inherits the, a minor child, for instance, does not have to do the 10-year rule, does not have to start taking it out until they reach the age of majority. So there are the 10-year rule is what most people will have if they are a non-spouse beneficiary. Uh, just keep in mind, spouses have a little bit different rules. They can always treat it as their own. And then minor children also have special treatment. So those are just, no, we get a lot of questions on those, I know. Know that this does not apply to Roth IRAs. They are not tax-deferred accounts. Um, and so once you inherit a Roth IRA, even though they say, again, you have to take it out over 10 years, you don't have the taxes to consider there. Uh, Ryder, what month were you born in? 
Oh, me? I was born in February. All right. So let's see. Half of February would be. Uh... <laughs> this this rule is not a problem for me, but I am I am expressing I am expressing empathy and understanding for those who are born at the end of the year and have to go through their whole birthday their whole year. And, and then and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden realize, oh, no, I'm actually 72 this year. All right, Nancy. A pain, uh, a pain, I know. <laughs> Nancy, we got about a minute left. What about uh, uh, rules about RMDs and donations to charities? Well, this is a good way to give to your favorite charities. So if you are subject to those required minimum distributions and you don't really need that money, um, instead of putting it in your pocket and then turning around and giving directly to the charity, you can have it sent out from your IRA account directly to that uh, charity. It has to be um, a recognized charity. Any church will um, will be okay to do that. And each time you make that distribution for a charity, you have to use a separate form. But it's a great way to do it. All righty. You've been listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Taff. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Tuesdays at 9 for Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. You know, three minutes of your time will help pay for another year's worth of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. It is drive time, and if you're planning on helping out the nonprofits that are meaningful to you this fall, now is the time. You can do that by giving at mpbonline.org or by calling 888-372-4483. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.